0: All right, uh Matthew chapter 16 tonight and uh, this this is a thrilling chapter. One of the most theologically controversial chapters in the entire Gospel of Matthew and you'll see why as we get into it. Verse 1. Then the Pharisees and Sadducees came and testing him asked him that he would show them a sign from heaven. He answered and said to them, "When it is evening, you say it will be fair weather for the sky is red. And in the morning it will be foul weather today for the sky is red." and threatening. Hypocrites, you know how to discern the face of the sky, but you cannot discern the signs of the times. A wicked and adulterous generation seeks after a sign, and no sign shall be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. And he left them and departed. When we come into verse 1 of chapter 16, we notice something very striking from the very beginning of verse 1. We notice it in the context that it's been building up to in the Gospel of Matthew. We've seen this increasing opposition between Jesus and the religious leaders. And before we're done tonight, we're going to see this confrontation between Jesus and the religious leaders reach a brand new level. But, But we saw last time we were together that it got so severe that Jesus started doing ministry among the Gentiles, right? He went and saw that Syrophoenician woman, the woman of Tyre and Sidon, and he went and ministered to her needs in Matthew chapter fifteen, and then ministering to a crowd that was very much at the very best mixed Jewish and Gentile when he fed the four thousand. Such we saw that our last time together. But in verse one, we see something remarkable. It says, "Then the Pharisees and Sadducees came." Now, something that would we should know about this is that it was very unusual to see the Pharisees and the Sadducees working together on anything. These were two different religious groups or parties within Judaism of Jesus' day. And their working together shows that there was a deep fear among the religious leaders. The, the Pharisees and the Sadducees were long-standing enemies, and the fact that they could forget their differences and come together in opposition to Jesus shows that they regarded Jesus as a very serious threat. You see, the Pharisees lived according to the smallest points of the oral and the written law. The the Sadducees, they only received the written words of the Hebrew Scriptures. The Pharisees, they believed in angels, they believed in the resurrection of the dead, and the Sadducees did not. As a matter of fact, later on in Acts chapter 23, Paul exploited this difference of of theology between the Pharisees and the Sadducees to get them fighting together in the Sanhedrin so that he could be distracted and, and, and sort of escape the argument. The Pharisees were not a political party. The Pharisees were happy to live under any government that would leave them alone to practice their religion the way they wanted to. But the Sadducees? The Sadducees were aristocrats. They were leaders. They collaborated with the Romans to keep their wealth and their power. And finally, the Pharisees looked for and they longed for the Messiah. The Sadducees, they didn't look for the Messiah so much. Yet for all those differences, They came together to oppose Jesus. And I want you to see something. Isn't it remarkable? Here's Jesus bringing people together. (laughs) Bringing together enemies. Pharisees, Sadducees, normally enemies. Jesus brings them together. Now he didn't bring them together in a good way. They united together in opposition to Jesus. But they came together nonetheless. And what did they do? Verse 1 tells us. Testing him they asked him that he would show them a sign from heaven. Now please let's remind ourselves, Jesus had done many signs, right? Many miracles. D- Jesus was not short on miracles. He had a lot of miracles. Anybody could have looked at his ministry and, and gained evidence that he was someone special sent from God because of the miracles that he did. Yet, they remained unconvinced. And I want you to know specifically what they look for in verse 1. It said they wanted a sign from heaven. Now They may be making a contrast in their mind between signs on earth and signs in heaven. Something like this. Well, Jesus, it's one thing for you to heal some blind people and a couple lepers and maybe to deliver somebody from demonic possession. But those are all things of this earth. But Jesus, if you showed us some great sign in the sky, If you wrote out in fiery letters in the sky, I am God, or something like that. Or, maybe more pointedly, if you sent down fire from heaven to consume a Roman legion, the the, the arm of violence that oppresses us, if you were to do that, then we would believe you. They're sort of manipulating Jesus into saying this, well, yeah, you've done a lot of signs, but not the ones we want to see. Give us the ones we want to see. It's very interesting. Back in Matthew chapter 12, Jesus was asked a very similar question, and in response, what did Jesus say then? He said, I'll give you a sign. It's the sign of Jonah. And he's going to refer to the same thing later on in this very passage. So, in response to this request for a sign, when they had already seen so many signs, what did Jesus say? Verse 3, hypocrites! You know how to discern the face of the sky, but you cannot discern the signs of the times. Jesus condemned their hypocrisy. They felt very confident about predicting the weather from the signs they saw around them, but they were blind to the signs regarding Jesus' messianic credentials right in front of their eyes. In other words, the very proof that they could not discern the signs was that they asked Jesus for a sign, right? Right? if they could really see what was going on around them, they would have never asked Jesus for a sign because they would have known that the signs were happening all around them. Now, by the way, you should know that when Jesus called them hypocrites, it was very strong for him to say, but Jesus was not the only one who noticed hypocrisy among the religious leaders in his day. There was a saying that went in Jesus' day that if all the hypocrites in the world were divided into ten different parts, Jerusalem would have nine of the ten parts of the hypocrites. So he said, you can't discern the signs of the times. And before we talk about verse 4, let me say one more thing about this phrase. Jesus said this of the religious leaders of his own day regarding the signs connected to his first coming. I've come, and you can't see the signs. There were prophecies, there were circumstances, and there were evidences that should have made it clear to them that that the signs of the times indicated that the Messiah would come. I want you to notice, many people today are just as blind to the signs of the times regarding the second coming. Weren't the religious leaders of Jesus' day blind to the signs of the times that would indicate his first coming? They absolutely were. And in the same way many people today, they ignore the fact that the Bible says that there's going to be a certain sort of spiritual condition of the very last days, a political condition of the very last days, an economic condition, a social condition, all these different things of the very last days. And our modern society fits that profile precisely. People who can't see the signs of the times today are just as blind as these religious leaders. Don't we sometimes ask ourselves that? How could they have missed the Messiah? Jesus came to them and they missed him. In the same way, many people today are blind, willfully blind to the signs of the times in their own midst. But anyway, in in verse four, Jesus says, a wicked and adulterous generation seeks after a sign. This statement of Jesus reminds us That signs alone convert no one. It's far too easy to put too much confidence in signs and wonders as tools to bring people to faith in Jesus. Many people think this way. They think, you know, if people only saw a miracle, then they would believe. I'm sure that there are some people who have been converted because they saw a miracle, and the miracle impressed them of the reality of God or the power of his presence or something like that. But listen, You can never, never underestimate the ability of people to deny God and to disbelieve even in the face of evidence that's right in front of their face. And that's exactly what these guys were doing. You see, the problem isn't that the signs themselves are weak, that if Jesus just did a better sign, then they would believe. No, the problem was that they were a wicked and adulterous generation, and that's why they were seeking after a sign. You know, the Bible gives repeated examples of those who saw remarkable signs and did not believe. My favorite example of this is in the Exodus. That generation that came out of Egypt, right, and came to Mount Sinai and saw the most amazing manifestations of God's power and glory and provision and all of these things, that same generation perished in the wilderness. Because even though they saw all these supernatural signs, that in itself wasn't enough to change their corrupt hearts. So Jesus says, verse 4, No sign shall be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. You see, Jesus did promise them a sign. He goes, okay, I'm not going to give you the kind of sign you're looking for, but I will give you a sign, a sign that will have power to bring people to faith. And the sign that has power to bring people to faith is the sign of his own resurrection. Now, Jesus has previously mentioned the sign of the prophet Jonah way back in Matthew chapter 12, and he clearly explained it as his coming resurrection. And I'll just do this by way of review because I think it's wonderful. Have you ever wondered how many... Uh, similarities there are between Jonah and Jesus. Both Jonah and Jesus sacrificed themselves so that other people would be saved. Isn't that exactly what Jonah did? There's Jonah on the boat. The the, the boat is gonna sink. It's being crashed about by the waves. It's going under. The water is filling. The sailors are terrified. What does Jonah say? He says, "Sacrifice me." Throw me into the deep so that you can be saved. And that's exactly what happened. As soon as they threw him into the water, what happened? The storm calmed and the sailors were saved because Jonah sacrificed himself. And then what did Jonah do? Jonah disappeared from all human view in doing this. He went under the water. Nobody could see him. It was as if he was dead. And then Jonah was sustained in the days that he could not be seen but he came back after three days as if back from the dead. And then what did Jonah do? Jonah preached repentance. In all these ways, Jonah was similar to the work that Jesus would do. And so this great confrontation, you see this this, uh, battle that Jesus has ongoing with the religious leaders where he leaves them saying, listen, you're a wicked and adulterous generation. Can you imagine saying that to a delegation of scribes or uh, Sadducees and Pharisees? these men who would be the officials, the men in the nice suits, the men with all the official credentials, the men with the heavy gold-plated business cards because they were the heavy dudes. Jesus says to them, you're a wicked and adulterous generation and the only sign I'm going to give to you is the sign of the prophet Jonah. Well, He has to explain this to his disciples and so he begins to explain it in verse 5. Let's pick it up there. Now when his disciples had come to the other side, they had forgotten to take bread. Then Jesus said to them, Take heed and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And they reasoned among themselves, saying, It is because we've taken no bread. But Jesus, being aware of it, said to them, "O you of little faith, why do you reason among yourselves because you have brought no bread? Do you not yet understand or remember the five loaves of the five thousand and how many baskets you took up, nor the seven loaves of the four thousand and how many large baskets you took up? How is it that you do not understand that I did not speak to you concerning bread, but to beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees? Then they understood that he did not tell them to beware of the leaven of the bread, but of the doctrine of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Very interesting here, isn't it? They get back in the boat, they're going along, and Jesus explains to them, hey guys, I really want you to beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And they start thinking amongst us, well, what do we do? Gee, this is bad, we've got to beware. Leaven, that means bread. We didn't bring any bread. Jesus must be hungry. We're kind of hungry. Where's the bread? Jesus uses the metaphor of leaven to try to teach his disciples, but they're not getting it. It's a very strange concern for them to have, right? Just as Jesus pointed out. Hey, guys, just within the last few weeks, I fed 5,000 with a few loaves and there was a lot left over. I fed 4,000 with a few loaves and there was a lot left over. Don't think that I have any trouble providing bread. But then it says in verse 9 that they understood that he did not tell them to beware of the leaven of bread, but of the doctrine of the Pharisees and Sadducees. What Jesus wanted to do was impress the importance of being on guard against false teaching, especially false teaching that supports religious hypocrisy. Because wouldn't you say that would be the common ground between the Pharisees and the Sadducees? It's a very fair question. Jesus says, beware of the doctrine of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And what I want you to understand, the Pharisees and the Sadducees had hardly anything in common when it came to doctrine. But one thing they did have in common was their religious hypocrisy. And they used their false doctrines to support their religious hypocrisy. And that's what God's people always have to be on guard against. I find it very interesting that in this passage, Jesus charged or or, or criticized his disciples for three things. First of all, he said, you're ignorant. You're, you're ignorant. You didn't understand that I'm using material things like leaven to illustrate spiritual things. That is the dangerous teachings and practices of the Sadducees and Pharisees. So first, Jesus says to disciples, you're ignorant. Secondly, he says, you've got unbelief. You're of little faith because you're overly concerned with the supply of bread when you've seen me provide on many previous occasions. And then thirdly, he criticized them for forgetfulness because they seem to forget what Jesus had done before providing bread. I think those three things, ignorance, unbelief, and forgetfulness. Don't you wish you could say that those died out with the original 12 disciples? But they did not, right? Wouldn't you say that many times, this is our problem before God, is it not? Ignorance. We don't know what God's doing. We don't know where he's going. We don't know what he's doing in the big picture with his word or in the individual picture of what he's doing with our life. And secondly, We're often filled with unbelief, are we not? God tells us something, God leads us towards something, and we just don't believe it. Then thirdly, forgetfulness. Oh, how this is a big problem with me. God does something amazing, and I forget about it. I just forget. It's like, you know, a week later, two weeks later, six months later, it's like it never happened. And then somebody will remind me, i go, oh yeah, that was amazing, isn't it wonderful? But if you would have asked me in a million years to think of it on my own, I would have never thought of forgetfulness. I have to say, this is not to my credit. It's not a sweet thing with me. It's a sin before God to be so forgetful of the great things that God has done. Well, in the midst of all this, Wouldn't you think that Jesus would say, You disciples, you're so ignorant, you're so unbelieving, you're so forgetful. I don't want to have much to do with you for a while. But it wasn't like that with Jesus at all. Instead, he said, I want to spend some special time with you. Instead of pushing the disciples away, he drew them closer to himself. Verse 13, when Jesus came into the region of Caesarea Philippi. So what does Jesus do? He takes a retreat. He takes a trip with his disciples. They withdrew from the predominantly Jewish region of Galilee... And he came to a place that was more populated by Gentiles. Likely this was a retreat from the pressing crowds. Everywhere they went, there were crowds of hundreds or thousands that wanted something from Jesus. And he goes, you know what, let's go to the more pagan area because that way people won't bother me as much. And so they go into the area of Caesarea Philippi, which is about 25 miles or or almost 50 kilometers northeast of the Sea of Galilee. The the population there was mainly non-Jewish. And so Jesus would be pretty much left alone, and he could teach his disciples, draw them closer. He saw ignorance, unbelief, and forgetfulness in them. He says, I need to spend more time, more closely with these guys. Verse 13 again. Jesus came into the region of Caesarea Philippi, and he asked his disciples, saying, Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? Now, what's amazing is where Jesus asked this question. Caesarea Philippi was an area associated with idols and rival deities. If you've ever been on a tour of Israel, I hope you went to Caesarea Philippi, also called Bane. It's beautiful beautiful rocks and waterfalls and streams and trees. Many people say that this is some of their favorite area of Israel because it's so beautiful in the water's there. But one of the things you notice is that there's a great big rock out where the great sort of fountain or the waters come forth from, and there are idol carvings within the rocks because this was a place that was given to the worship of, well, the, the god Pan, the Roman gods, Uh, the the worship of Caesar, it was as if Jesus deliberately said, I'm going to go to the background of these other religions where these other gods are worshipped, and I'm going to establish that I'm a different kind of God. I am the true and living God. And it's right there he asked this question, who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? Please remember, Jesus did not ask this question because he was insecure about himself, right? Right? Sometimes we would do that, right? Well, um, what do people think about me? You know, do people like me? I hope people like me. I want people to like me. Jesus isn't like that at all. He, he didn't ask it because he didn't know who he was. Jesus wasn't a man searching for his own identity. I don't know who I am. Can somebody tell me who I am? Who do you think I am? It wasn't like that at all. No, Jesus did not have some sad, unfortunate dependence upon the opinion of other peoples. He asked this question as an introduction to a more important follow-up question. Who do men say that I am? And so now they're going to give the answer. Verse 16, it's verse 14, I mean. So they said, some say John the Baptist, some Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. People who thought that Jesus was John the Baptist didn't know that much about him, right? If you thought Jesus was John the Baptist, you didn't really know that they ministered together at the same time. By the way, there was a doctrine at that time, at least according to Adam Clark, there was a doctrine at that time among the Pharisees of something like the transmigration of souls that said that basically when a man like John the Baptist died, his soul might migrate and go into another person. And some people thought that, well, maybe this is what happened to Jesus. that The soul of John the Baptist had gone... Now, of course, this is a completely unbiblical doctrine, but maybe some people at the time believed it. That the soul of John the Baptist went over and transferred over to this man, Jesus of Nazareth. But they didn't know that much about Jesus, if that's what they thought. Some people thought that maybe he was Elijah. Elijah, a great preacher of national righteousness, right? A man of great miraculous power. Or Jeremiah, uh, uh, the weeping prophet who tried to turn the nation back to God. A man who spoke the words of God. That perhaps when they saw Jesus in these roles, John the Baptist, Elijah, Jeremiah, they're hoping that he's the guy who's going to bring Israel to repentance. He's the guy who's going to drive out the powers that corrupt and oppress Israel. notice It would be a compliment, wouldn't it? Wouldn't I be complimented if you said, Man, you minister just like John the Baptist. You minister just like Elijah. You minister just like Jeremiah. I would think, wow, do you really think so? That's pretty nice. It would be a compliment if you said it of me or of any human being walking this earth. But do you understand? It was not a compliment of Jesus. Because no matter what other people thought, This was a low estimation of who Jesus really was. So much greater than John the Baptist, so much greater than Elijah, so much greater than Jeremiah. But it's interesting, this is what people thought of Jesus. Listen, you need to consider this. People have all different opinions about who Jesus is. Well, I think Jesus was this. Well, I think Jesus was that. I think Jesus was something else. Can I just say... Who cares what people think about Jesus in one sense? In another sense, we care very deeply what people think about Jesus. But we care very deeply that they would have the right opinion of Jesus. And just because somebody says, well, I think Jesus was this or that, it doesn't mean it's so. I like what Charles Spurgeon said about this. He said, listen, Christ is sometimes up in the market and sometimes down in the market. But mark you, he is not in the market at all. He can neither be bought nor sold. They say well of him one day, and they spake ill of him another day. What matters of what they say? He needs no honor from them, and he fears not their dishonor. Unless they believe in him as Lord and Savior, it is of no importance what they think of him. Now that was sort of the introduction to the greater question that's found in verse 15. But let's start back at verse 14. So they said, Some say John the Baptist, some Elijah, and others Jeremiah, and one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? I think this was the real question Jesus was getting at. This was the reason why he brought them up to Caesarea Philippi. This is the reason why he asked, who do men say that I am? He says, who do you say that I am? I want you to notice something right off. Jesus assumed that his disciples would have a different opinion than the rest of the world, right? He didn't just say, oh, well, I guess you guys think the same thing. No, no. I know what the world thinks. Some say John the Baptist, some Elijah, some Jeremiah. But I'm going to assume that my disciples think differently of me. Who do you say that I am? And Jesus asked them as individuals what they believed about Jesus. You know, this is the question placed before every person who hears of Jesus. And by the way, it's not Jesus who is judged by our answer. It is we ourselves who are judged by our answer. When Jesus says to you, "Who do you say that I am?" it doesn't change who Jesus is, but it changes who you are for all of eternity. And you can say that we answer this question every day by what we believe and do. If we really believe that Jesus is who he says he is, then it's going to affect the way that we live, right? Now, verse 16. Simon Peter answered and said, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Now, Peter knew what the opinion of the crowd was. The opinion of the crowd was complimentary towards Jesus, They they, they didn't say something bad about him. You're Ahab, you're, you know, uh, a Herod. No, they didn't say anything bad about Jesus. But it wasn't accurate. Jesus was more than John the Baptist, more than Elijah, more than Jeremiah, more than a prophet, more than a reformer, more than a miracle worker. Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Now, I have to think that this was an understanding that Peter and the other disciples came to over time. Think about it. In the beginning, when they were attracted to Jesus, they were attracted to him as a remarkable and unusual rabbi. And they committed themselves to that rabbi as his disciples or students. And that was commonly practiced in that day. If you wanted a theological education that day, you wouldn't normally join what was known as a Bible college or something like that, right? You would attach yourself to a rabbi who could teach you. And that's what the disciples did. But yet over time, Peter and presumably the other disciples by this point, they understood after seeing Jesus, after hearing him, after living with him for these years, they understood that Jesus was not only the Messiah, the Christ, but that he was also the son of the living God. And please understand, that's saying to. Different things, not contradictory things, but different things. To say you're the Messiah means you're the national redeemer, the hope of Israel. But to say that you're the son of the living God means that you are God himself. And Jesus understood that Jesus was not only God's Messiah, but he was also God himself. To receive the title... The son of the living God. By the way, I think it's wonderful that he says the living God, right? Because in the midst where he had that worship and those temples and those shrines to all those pagan gods, they're all dead gods. They're all the gods of men's fantasies and expectations. They're not living gods. But Jesus is the son of the living God. That was in a very unique sense to make a claim to deity himself. So it's like the light goes off, right? It's like on the game show when somebody gets the right answer, you know, beep, 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 or the light flashes, or the the bells ring, or whatever it is. Peter, you've done it. You've scored. You've got the right answer. It's perfect. Jesus is the Messiah, the Christ, and he is God himself. He is Messiah and God. So what does Jesus respond? Look at verse 17. Jesus answered and said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah. For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Then he commanded his disciples that they should tell no one that he was Jesus the Christ. Wow. Verse 17. First, he looks at Peter square in the face, goes, Peter, blessed. You're blessed, Peter. And I'll tell you why you're blessed. Because flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Peter, you spoke this by divine inspiration. Even if you didn't realize it was divine inspiration, you can only know this about me. You can only know who I really am is that God himself reveals it to you. And that's a genuine blessing, both by the insight and by how it come to him. I find this fascinating. First of all, it seems that Peter was unaware that he had received a divine revelation, right? He didn't really seem to know it. We too often expect God to speak in strange and unnatural ways. And here God spoke through Peter so naturally, he didn't even realize it was the Father who was in heaven that revealed it to him but it also speaks very powerfully of our need for a supernatural revelation of Jesus. Do you understand we need that? You need an understanding of Jesus that goes beyond flesh and blood knowledge. Oh, you might know a lot about Jesus. You might think, that the best way for you to know Jesus would be to live with him in a flesh and blood relationship, right? For for you to get in the time machine and go back 2,000 years and live and walk with Jesus' disciples and hear his voice and watch him move and see him do miracles and to have a flesh and blood knowledge of Jesus. And let me tell you something, though that would be good, I'm sure you would be blessed by that, it is even more important to have a knowledge of Jesus that comes from revelation by God the Father. And I would say this, Anybody who's born again, anybody who knows Jesus in a saving way only knows it because God the Father has revealed to them who Jesus really is. Doesn't it strike you sometimes as remarkable that you can have great scholars, people who know the Bible frontwards and backwards, they know how to read it in the original Hebrew, in the original Greek, they're they're experts, they're scholars, and yet they don't know who Jesus is at all. Why? Why? because they have not received this revelation from God as to who Jesus really is. It's life-changing. You can't be satisfied with knowing about Jesus. You have to, by divine revelation, by God speaking to your heart, this is who Jesus really is. Now, in response to that, verse 18, Jesus, I'll tell you more how you're blessed. I say to you that you're Peter. by the way, Peter was not a name in the ancient world. It seems that Jesus created the name right here. He invented the name, calling him Rock. The name Peter means rock. And it's sort of an unlikely title for Peter, right? Because Peter's personality, Peter's character was anything but rock-like in these chapters of the Gospel of Matthew and the other Gospels that we read. But, But Peter yet was a rock and would become a rock God was and would transform his natural extreme character into something very solid and reliable. And then Peter says in verse, excuse me, Jesus says in verse 18, on this rock I will build my church. Now, those words have been the cause of a lot of controversy, have they not? Some people say, well, Jesus wasn't referring to Peter at all. Maybe Jesus was referring to himself. Uh, Your Peter. And then Jesus mentions back to himself, and on this rock, I will build myself. And people note a distinction. There's a a small distinction in the original Greek between the word Peter and the word rock that Jesus used. When he says, you are Peter, and when he says, upon this rock, those are two different words. They're they're similar, very similar, but yet they're different. And their speculation is that Jesus means two different things by them. You're Peter, you're like a little rock, But on this rock, and maybe Jesus gestured to himself, I will build my church, the rock of myself. Maybe, maybe Jesus meant the rock of Peter's confession, Peter's faith. Maybe that was it. I think that we have a very reliable guide to understanding what Jesus meant here. I think Peter tells us what Jesus meant. Peter, by his own testimony, did not see himself as the rock upon which the church was founded. Peter wrote that we are living stones, but Jesus is the cornerstone. Now, you could say that Peter was the first believer, that he was the first rock upon many rocks to be built upon that cornerstone. But Peter says this, First Peter chapter 2, verses 4 and 5, listen carefully. Coming to him, Jesus Christ, as a living stone, rejected indeed by men, but chosen by God and precious, you also, as living stones, are being built up a spiritual house. In other words, we come to Jesus as the living stone, the keystone, the important stone in God's building. I think Peter himself understood that Jesus wasn't referring to him as the rock. And then he says what in verse 18? And on this rock I will build my church. Did you know that this is the first use of the word church in the New Testament, or in the Bible for that matter, using the ancient Greek word ekklesia? Now, significantly, this was well before the beginnings of what we normally think of the church on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. Jesus was anticipating the work of the church. Jesus was prophesying what was going to come forth from those disciples, from those apostles, and those who would believe in their message, that a church, an ecclesia, a group, was going to come from them. It's very interesting. There's a few times in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the, the, the Septuagint, there's a few times when that ancient Greek word ekklesia was used for the congregation of Israel. But for the most part, the ancient Greek word ekklesia was not a religious word of all. It just meant a group, or a called out group of people. And in describing this later group of his followers and disciples, Jesus deliberately chose a word that wasn't religious. It wasn't churchy sounding. furthermore, don't you love how Jesus put it? I will build my church. Isn't that so important for us to remember? My church. Who does the church belong to? The church belongs to Jesus. And by the way, wouldn't you say this pretty bold claim to deity? For, for Jesus to say, hey, it's my church. He has to be God, right? Could you imagine uh, David or Elijah or Moses or any of the great men of the Old Testament saying such a thing? Never in a million years. They would say it's God's church. But because Jesus is God, he can say, my church. When we take it all together, the promise is very wonderful. He, He brings his people together in common, right? He builds them together. I will build. And then he builds on a firm foundation. On this rock I will build. And then he builds something that belongs to him, my church. And then he builds it into a stronghold. The gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. That's what he says in verse 18, right? Jesus offered a promise that the forces of death and darkness, that they couldn't prevail against or conquer the church. And listen, that's a very valuable promise in darker discouraging times to the church. Isn't it easy for us to get very discouraged about the condition of the church? You see people falling away you see people denying Jesus Christ you see other parts of the church that are just dead dead sometimes magnificent buildings empty dead spiritually dead you could write Ichabod over those churches you look at other places and there's compromise compromise so terrible they don't care how they live they don't care if their leaders are sexually immoral They don't care about the positions of men and women in the church and having a biblical standard for it. They don't care about all kinds of sin and immorality in the midst of the church. They're just dead. They're selling out to the world. Whatever the fashions of the age say that the church is running after this, it's so easy to get depressed about the church. We need to forget about that. I'm not saying close our eyes to the reality of the world around us, but we need to remember a higher reality. The higher reality is our Lord, the Lord of the church, has told us that the gates of hell will not prevail against His church. They will not. Go ahead, they can try. They're not going to crush the church. All the schemes, all the powers of the invisible world, when they are put together against the church, it's as if the the, the councils of hell have a place of, of, of agreement, of meeting, of strategy. The gates, right? Because in the gates of an ancient city, that's where such things would be planned and with all the authorities of hell, all the hierarchies of spiritual uh, wickedness come against the church, it will not prevail. No strength of Satan, no strength of his angels will ever prevail to destroy the church. So what does Jesus say? He says, no, they're not going to, my church is going to last, my church is going to endure, and I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. That's in verse 19. Now the idea of Peter... Holding the keys of the kingdom of heaven has captured the imagination and sometimes the theology of many Christians throughout the centuries. When you go uh, to the great cathedrals or the great art museums, you, you want to know how to look for Peter, right? Who's Peter? Peter's the guy holding the keys. Do you know who Paul is? Paul's the guy with the sword, usually a bald guy, and holding a sword. Well, why does Paul have a sword? Many people think that they say that Paul holds a sword for two reasons. First of all, because he was such a fearless preacher of the word of God, right, which is the sword of God. And secondly, because that's how Paul was martyred. He had his head cut off by a sword. Poor Paul, he has to hold the whole instrument of his martyrdom. Peter gets to hold keys. And so all over the cathedrals, all over the art museums, whenever you see Peter represented, he's holding keys because people want to emphasize this oh peter you're the one with the keys of the kingdom of heaven and some people think that this means that peter has the authority to let people into heaven or to keep them out right so sometimes we, so peter's up there at the pearly gates right usually you see this in cartoons or in jokes right there a good person goes to heaven and they go to saint peter it sounds like the beginning of a joke right Why do people even think such things? Because they think, well, Peter has the keys of heaven. You go to heaven, you meet with Peter, he either lets you in or keeps you out. Some people also think that this means that Peter was the first pope and that his supposed successors have the keys that were first given to Peter. Indeed, the papal insignia of the Roman Catholic Church is made up of two prominent keys crossed together. Now listen, I have to tell you, I have no problem saying that Jesus had the keys of the kingdom and he sort of shook them and he gave them to Peter. He goes, here you go. Here's the keys. Peter, you have them. I have no problem with that. Peter had a very special place among all the disciples with incredibly special privileges. Do you realize that every time there's a list given of the disciples, whose name is first? Peter. Every time. Do you realize that he opened the doors of the kingdom to the Jewish people on the day of Pentecost, right? He was the one who preached. He was the one who announced to the Jewish world, here is Jesus, your Messiah, receive him. And then he opened the doors of the kingdom to the Gentiles in Acts chapter 10. Gentile, Peter did that. He had the keys. But listen, I have no problem with giving Peter the keys. What I have a big problem with, is the idea that Peter gave those keys to the next pope. And that pope gave them to the next pope, and so on. There is no biblical argument whatsoever that Peter's privilege, that Peter's authority was passed on. You, you could put it this way Jesus gave Peter the keys, but he didn't give him the authority to pass them on to further generations. And there is not a whisper in the scriptures that Peter's authority was passed on to subsequent generations. The idea that apostolic authority comes from Jesus, who gave it to Peter, and then Peter put his hands on the heads of approved and ordained men, who in turn put their hands on the heads of approved and ordained men throughout the centuries, so on and so on and so on. So today, some guy who's a priest and wears a funny robe today or a funny hat can say, well, I have apostolic authority because I'm in this chain that goes all the way back to Peter. That's nonsense. It is exactly what Spurgeon said. Spurgeon said that it was the laying of empty hands upon empty heads. That's exactly what it is. No, true apostolic succession is to stay faithful to the testimony of the apostles and prophets of the New Testament times that God gave us as recorded in the New Testament. You want apostolic authority? You rely on the New Testament. That's all the apostolic authority you ever have. And if I were to meet some man in his fancy robes, and the great hat, who with great dignified words would make claims he has the ring that proves apostolic authority, or he has the staff, or whatever it is, it would not shake me or intimidate me in the slightest. I, or you, or any believer, has an equal claim to apostolic authority based on the word of God that came to us from the apostles. Now verse 19 Jesus says something very interesting as well. He says to Peter and Peter, and there's a question whether or not he's speaking to all the disciples here or just to Peter, if he was speaking just to Peter, it's really of no matter, because later he says something very similar in Matthew chapter 18, to all the disciples. So, so this applies not only to Peter, but to all the disciples. He says this: "Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven." This power has been greatly misunderstood and abused terribly throughout the centuries you want to know why the medieval popes of the roman catholic church could be such tyrants such despots such spiritually corrupt men because of a misunderstanding of this power because this is what they said they said listen i have this power from peter and if i don't want you to go to heaven you're not going to heaven." If I want you to go to hell, you're going to hell, and that's all there is to it. And the Pope, in their minds, literally had the power to let someone in heaven or to keep it. He says, whatever I bind on earth is bound in heaven. That's it. Whatever I loose on earth is loosed in heaven. That's it. You better do what I say, or I'm going to send you straight to hell with no chance of salvation. That is literally how they understood this and still understand this in Roman Catholic theology. But it's almost a complete ignorance Over how these things were understood in the days of Jesus. The power for binding and loosing is something that the Jewish rabbis in that day used. They bound or loosed an individual in the application of a particular point of the law. Jesus promised Peter and the other apostles that they would set the boundaries authoritatively for the new covenant community. Paul later on says, that the, God gave to the apostles and prophets a foundation to build. And that's exactly the authority that Jesus was giving Peter and the apostles. You see, this was Jesus giving both the permission and the authority for this first generation of apostles to make the rules for the early church. And indirectly, it gave them the authority to bring forth, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, these writings that we rely on in the New Testament. You see, in daily Jewish life, this authority to bind or loose could get very complicated. Here's one example from rabbinical writings uh, that I heard from a teacher named Mike Russ. He says this. Okay, a dog dies in your house. You go to the rabbi. Rabbi, is my house clean or unclean? That was a big question. Because if your house was declared unclean, you had to go through a long, elaborate, and probably expensive ceremony to ceremonially cleanse your house. Rabbi! The dog died in my house. Am I bound or loosed according to the law? The rabbi says, you're unclean. You're bound according to that law. Oh, rabbi, my dog died outside of my house, in my front you know, area, in my front garden. Is my house clean or unclean? The rabbi says, nope, nope, your house is clean. And then you come to the rabbi and say, Rabbi, my dog died on the doorstep. Is my house clean or unclean? The ancient rabbis thought this was a very important issue. And so this is how they decided it. If the dog died with his nose pointing inside the house, your house was unclean. If the dog died with the nose pointing outside the house, then your house was clean. You see, the rabbis had this responsibility. Here's what the law says. Now, Rabbi, am I bound or loosed in regard to the law for this? Jesus did this for his own disciples. Do you remember when the disciples were walking through the grain fields and they saw the grain and they picked it up and they rubbed it in their hands and they blew out the chaff and they popped it in their mouth as was accepted in those days? And they did it on the Sabbath, right? I would almost be positive that the disciples looked at their rabbi and they said, is this okay for us to do on the Sabbath? And Jesus said, you're loosed. Go ahead and do it. And therefore, when the Pharisees came along later and objected to it, Jesus said, don't you hassle my disciples. I'm the rabbi here, and I've declared that they're loosed. He appealed to his own authority. Now, significantly, when it came to understand the dietary laws of the Old Covenant, in light of the new work of Jesus, God spoke to who first He spoke to Peter first, right? Do you remember that in the book of Acts? Arise, kill and eat. Don't call these things common anymore. He and the other apostles, guided by the Spirit of God, would bind and loose Christians regarding these parts of the Old Covenant. At the end of it all, verse 20, it says that Jesus commanded his disciples that they should tell no one that he was the Christ. Isn't that strange? Here it is. You come to the summit point of Revelation. Peter, you finally got it. You understand that I am Messiah and God, but don't tell anybody. Isn't that strange? I think there's two reasons. First of all, Jesus was still very aware of the timing of his ministry. I don't know if you realize it. I don't think I've talked much about it. But we are entering into the last months of Jesus's earthly ministry. These are the last months before the crucifixion. And Jesus knows God has a timing. Jesus doesn't want things to get out of hand too fast. And he knows that if the crowds hear Messiah, they're going to think a wrong thing. When they hear Messiah, they think conqueror of the Roman oppressors. They think politics. They think a different idea than what they should think. So Jesus says, no, it's not time yet. And plus, I think Jesus understood something else. This idea, this understanding that Jesus was Messiah and God, how did it come to Peter? By a revelation of the Father, right? Isn't it how it has to come to each individual? It wasn't time yet for them to persuade and to preach that message. By the way, they themselves did not have a good understanding of what it meant that Jesus was Messiah, as will be shown in verse 21. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised the third day. I don't know if I can explain this to you strongly enough, but I just want you to appreciate it. What a shock this must have been to the disciples. This must have absolutely floored them. Messiah, Son of the living God, upon this rock, the keys of the kingdom, binding and loosing. It's all so glorious. And then she says, guys, i got to tell you something. Come a little closer. Um, I'm going to go to Jerusalem, and I'm going to suffer, and those religious leaders, they're going to put me to death. I'm going to be raised the third day. When they heard that from Jesus, they must have been absolutely shocked after fully understanding that Jesus was the Messiah, the last thing that they expected was that the Messiah would suffer many things and be killed. Now we know that that was the predicted work of the Messiah. We know that Isaiah chapter 53 tells us this, that he must die and he must, after his death, be raised the third day. It all had to be. But yet, for them to hear it and to understand it, at the time when it seemed that the ministry of Jesus was the most glorious, must have come as quite a shock, so much as a shock, that when he said, and be raised the third day, it seems that the disciples completely forgot about it. Completely. They were shocked when Jesus rose from the dead. You know, when Jesus died on the cross and was buried in the tomb, they didn't say, oh, don't worry about it. He told us he'd die, he'd be raised after three days. None of that. They were in absolute despair. They didn't remember these things that Jesus said. So, verse 22. Then Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. <laughs> I love that. Began to rebuke him, right? Peter had a lot more. that he He was just getting started rebuking Jesus when Jesus stopped him, right? He began to rebuke him saying, Far be it from you, Lord. This shall not happen to you. Now, that was just the beginning. Peter had a lot more to say to sort of correct Jesus at this point. But he turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are an offense to me, for you are not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. You know, it's not hard to see Peter following these steps, right? Peter confesses Jesus as Messiah and God, right? Jesus compliments Peter, telling him, God the Father revealed this to you. Then Jesus tells of his impending suffering, death, and resurrection. And then Peter feels this isn't right. And he feels, I hear from God. Therefore, I have some authority or right to speak to Jesus in this situation. And then Peter begins to rebuke Jesus. There's Peter, bold enough to rebuke Jesus. He's confident that God told him that he was right and that Jesus was wrong at this point where it all broke down was that Peter was far too confident in his ability to hear from God. Because actually, Jesus' prediction of his coming suffering was entirely consistent with the word of God, was it not? Isaiah 53, among many other passages. While Peter was ignorant, at least at that moment of those passages. So what did Jesus say? Verse 23, he said, Get behind me, Satan. Now that's a pretty strong rebuke, don't you think? Poor Peter, you know, to use a, To use an expression in English, he went from the penthouse to the outhouse very quickly, right? From the highest to the lowest in a moment. At the one minute he's receiving revelations from God the Father, he's getting the keys to the kingdom of heaven right there. He's shaking the keys. The next minute, you're Satan. It's very, very shocking, isn't it? Jesus knew that there was a satanic purpose in discouraging him from his ministry on the cross and that Jesus was not going to allow that purpose to succeed. Listen, it, it's, it's interesting to think that people, without knowing it, can be tools of Satan. Without knowing it, people can be the voice of Satan to you. And I say without knowing it, because i tell you, Peter meant well. When he said these words to Jesus, Jesus, don't do it. No, reconsider this. I bet his voice was earnest and caring. It wasn't a growl. It wasn't like a satanic voice. Jesus, don't do this. You know, not, nothing like that. Every intention of Peter's heart was warm and nice. And you might even say loving and caring towards Jesus. Yet it was undeniably the voice of Satan. And sometimes people can be like that in our life. Now, how do we react to this? How do we react when somebody with good intentions is the voice of Satan? Well, first of all, I think we recognize it is indeed the voice of Satan. But we don't stop loving that person. You know, Jesus could have struck Peter down right now, right? A short time after this, Jesus goes and he curses a fig tree and it withers away, right? Jesus could have done the same thing with, with Peter, right? But he didn't. No, Peter, you're still in. Peter could have heard these words from Jesus. All right, give me back the keys right now. You you don't have the keys anymore. That's it. He didn't. We have to recognize that sometimes people who love us and care for us can nevertheless be the voice of Satan in our life. Because out of good intentions, they distract us or they discourage us from what God has for us in uh, his path for us you can be very sure that Peter was not aware that he spoke for Satan. Just as a moment before, he wasn't aware that he spoke for God. It's much easier to be a tool for God than we usually believe. It's also much easier to be a tool for Satan than we believe. And might I say too, don't we have to recognize that maybe there's been times, and I almost am afraid to say this, but I'm going to say it anyway, May there not have been times in our life where we have been a voice of Satan to somebody. Where there we are giving advice or giving counsel and we're just doing it purely on human wisdom, just like Peter was doing it, right? Well, you know, I don't think that's such a good plan. Whoa, whoa. Are you listening to the Spirit of God? Is this prayerful, spiritual advice that you're giving? Or are you just speaking off the top of your head from human wisdom? And let me say, sometimes our human wisdom is the voice of Satan in somebody's life. I don't say this to make you fearful about speaking to people or giving advice. I would just have you say, this is a good prayer for us to pray. Lord, make me sensitive to this. Lord, do not make me the voice, do not allow me to be the voice of Satan in somebody else's life. I might speak with good intention from human wisdom, and it could be the voice of the devil. That's exactly what Jesus meant, right? Verse 23, you are not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. How often have we been in that place? Jesus there explained how Peter came into the satanic way of thinking. He didn't make a deliberate choice to reject God. Peter did not say, okay, now I reject God and now I embrace Satan. It wasn't anything dramatic like that. He just started thinking upon very natural human lines. He let his mind settle on the things of men instead of the things of God and Satan took advantage of that. Peter is a perfect example of how a sincere heart combined with man's thinking can lead to disaster. So Jesus says, verse 24, Then Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Now please notice, this was a word spoken to his disciples, right? He's speaking to his disciples, You you want to come after me? You want to walk in my footsteps? Let me tell you what it means. Not only does it mean that I am going to be despised and rejected, not only does it mean that I'm heading for a cross, but if you want to follow me, you pick up your cross. It was bad enough for the disciples to hear that Jesus had to suffer, that Jesus had to be rejected, and that he would die on a cross. Now he tells them, you have to do the same thing. And when Jesus said, deny himself and take up his cross, everybody knew what Jesus meant when he said this. Everybody knew that the cross was an unrelenting instrument of death. There was no other purpose for a cross other than to kill people and to kill them in the most suffering, public, humiliating way possible. The cross wasn't about religious ceremonies. It wasn't about traditions. It wasn't about spiritual feelings. The cross was a way to kill people and to kill them with a lot of pain, with a lot of suffering, and with a lot of humiliation. These 20 centuries after Jesus, we've done a pretty good job of sanitizing and ritualizing the cross. Yet Jesus said something like this, If you want to follow me, you walk down death row daily. Can you think of that? Can you think of the prisoner? There he is in the shackles, and he's on his way to the hangman's noose, or to the electric chair. He's going to be executed. Jesus said, You walk down death row with me. You take up your cross. It's not a journey. It's a one-way trip. There's no return ticketing on the trip to the cross. Deny yourself and take up your cross. Isn't it interesting? Jesus sort of made an equivalent. Deny yourself, take up your cross. There's not two opposite things. Those are two things that are very much alike. Because that's what the cross is about. The cross is not about self-promotion. The cross is not about self-affirmation. The person carrying a cross knew one thing, that they could not save themselves. So he says, deny yourself. Live as an others-centered person. Now Jesus was the only person to ever do that perfectly, but we are to follow in his steps. And this is following Jesus at its simplest. He carried a cross, he walked to his death, so must those who follow him. Human nature wants to indulge self, not deny self. Death to self is always terrible. Do you know what death to self feels like? It feels like you're dying, right? It's not pleasant. And if we expect it to be pleasant or mild, we're going to be disillusioned. Death to self Is the radical command of the Christian life. And to take up your cross meant that you were going to certain death, and your only hope was in resurrection power. Verse 25 For whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For the Son of Man will come in the glory of his Father with his angels, and then he will reward each according to his works. You've got to follow this way, because it's the only way that you'll ever find life. I find it very interesting. Do you know what a very common Jewish criticism of modern Christianity is? It's not uncommon to find modern Jews who say this about Christians. They say, you Christians, you are death-obsessed you're focused on death. We Jews, we're focused on life. But Christians, they're messed up. They're focused on death. Now what we would say is that even though that is probably accurate of some Christians, it's not how the Christian life should be. The Christian life is not to be focused on death. It's to be focused on life. But we understand that the life we're focused upon is resurrection life. And resurrection life only comes by going through death first. We only have His newness of life, His resurrection life living in us if we will die first. So if you want to save your life, lose it. The the goal isn't to lose your life. The goal is to save it. But you're only going to save it by losing it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul. You know, it's amazing that the people who live this way before Jesus, they're the ones who are really happy. Giving our lives to Jesus all the way and living as others-centered people, that doesn't take away from our life. It adds to our life. And then Jesus said, verse 27, that he will reward each according to his works. That's the ultimate gain given on that day of reward. Verse 28. Assuredly, I say to you, there are some standing here who shall not taste death till they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Sort of a mysterious statement that Jesus ends the chapter with. What does it mean? Well, you have to wait for the next time we're together when we talk about that. Because it's answered powerfully in the very next chapter, Matthew chapter 17. So we're going to put that on hold. Let's just stop by considering this. Jesus gives this amazing revelation of who he is and what his destiny is. And what does he say? You have to follow with me in it. What I want to encourage you to is for you to follow Jesus in all the way. Into his death, right? I am identified with him in his death. I am identified with him in his burial. I am identified with him in his resurrection. Yes, we die to self. But we die to self not so that we can stay dead. We die to self so that we can live in the newness of life that he gives us. So do you have that? Are you following Jesus that way? This points to a depth of commitment, to a depth of passion in our Christian life that we have to admit, not everybody has. But but we must have it. Because that's the only way that we're going to find life. Let's pray. Father, that is our prayer. You know, Lord, we think of Jesus and what he submitted himself to on the cross. We think of how he went to the cross without reservation and fulfilled everything on our behalf. And now, Lord, by faith, we want to connect ourselves. We want to identify ourselves with Jesus, with Jesus crucified, with Jesus buried, with Jesus risen from the dead. And, Lord, we don't want to stop short We don't want to stop short of dying to self. We don't want to stop short, Lord, of rising up into resurrection life. Lord, it must be admitted that not everyone who calls themselves by the name of Christian seems to have this, this dynamic in their life, but Lord, we want it. We ask that you would show us every day what it means to deny ourselves, to take up our cross, and to follow you to follow you all the way into resurrection life. We identify ourselves with you, Lord Jesus. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.